Please listen carefully. Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. This podcast is all about developing your voice as a journalist and developing the skills to harness that voice. And I'm running a workshop. If you're interested in two days of star-studded storytelling advice, sign up now for the NPPA Virtual Video Storytelling Workshop coming Friday, August 7th and Saturday, August 8th. Two dozen top-notch journalists will discuss subjects from covering COVID-19 to dominating on digital to standing out on your own. Register now at nppa.org. I've got the direct link in this episode's show notes on tellingthestoryblog.com. One of the panels on the schedule is called Representation in Storytelling. This is one that I had wanted from the beginning, a serious discussion about the many ways we storytellers can influence people's perceptions of different groups. We do it with our words, we do it with our photos and videos, we do it with our edits, and we do it with our story choice. These choices matter, and they uniquely matter this year, the year of COVID-19, the year of nationwide protests for racial justice, and of course the year of a presidential election here in the States. Here to discuss this subject is one of the speakers at the workshop on this topic. She's the visuals editor at Vox. She's worked at NPR and done freelance projects for the New York Times, Vogue, India, and Reuters. And six months earlier, she was awarded the NPPA's John Long Ethics Award, given to someone who has, quote, upheld, shaped, and promoted ethical behavior in all forms of visual journalism. Kainaz Amaria, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. I love that phrase, dominating digital. That's awesome. Yeah, and I'm excited for our speakers for that group, too. We've got three very, very talented storytellers who just happen to be digital dynamos as well. So it's going to be nice to hear, because I think a lot of times we hear from, you know, we see examples of people who do really well on digital, but it's often divorced from their storytelling. And so these three are going to be a nice mix of all of that. So that's going to be an exciting group. So is yours. We've got a great panel about representation and storytelling. You're going to be on that along with Adrian Broadus of Care TV in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Tawanda Scott Sambu of CNN Digital. And again, I mentioned this off the top, but I think it's such an important subject because it's something that within the daily grind of news, so many of us just don't get enough time to think both internally and out loud with others about the kinds of decisions and choices that we made. And before we, we talk about some of the more relevant issues going on right now, I do want to just step back and get a little bit of a job description of what you do at Vox and how that plays into your role. Yeah, so uh, like you said, I run the visuals team at Vox, and that's pretty much defined as everything that isn't video. So my team is responsible for photography, illustrations, design, graphics, and interactives, which includes data viz uh, for, uh, you know, Vox.com for the site, as well as uh, off-platform storytelling, which includes Instagram and, and Twitter and Facebook. And when we talk about this idea of representation, and it's something that when you got that MPPA award, that was one of the things that was mentioned is how this is something that you discuss often, I would imagine both at Vox and also beyond. Talk about how that fits into what you do. So it's it's a really, I mean, I know, you know, it's very simple. I, I, you know, when you think about representation, 
what I think about is you wouldn't want any one medium or any one form of medium to be told by one group of people. And so for me, what representation means is just having broad, wide perspectives and people uh, telling stories and creating stories. So for us, when we think about representation, and specifically when I'm assigning photographers, I'm looking for local photographers that can enhance our reporting of a story, that know the community that they live in. Right. And, and, and understand the story on, on a deeper level than someone coming, flying in from outside. When we were talking about illustration um, and sort of photo collages and we talk about representation, we're asking ourselves, like, you know, uh, can we represent a broader range of people? Uh, is is the sort of white cisgender sort of person all do, do they have to be the default or, you know, are, are we are we representing a, a diverse group of people to illustrate the story is even as a default. I think especially mainstream media and white mainstream media has always sort of centralized the, you know, the white experience as a default. And so we're thinking really about how we can broaden our idea of visual storytelling. When we're looking at data, we're, we're looking at it through a lens of like, is there bias in this data? Who's created this data set? What is the source? Um, you know, looking at a story in like a 360 degree view and, and, and having conversations, getting out of our silos, talking to people, if, um, you know, uh, talking to people from different communities, talking to different editors, you know, um, all of that plays uh, into, into, uh, into our journalism. If there's one common thread in all of that that I just heard, it seems to be not just making the instinctive or impulsive decision, but taking an extra step or an extra beat rather, or an extra step back. And, and I would imagine that is so much of what it comes down to is just being willing to not just do the first thing that comes to mind, but examine, is this the right thing? Is this the right approach? Yeah, it's, it's thoughtfulness, right? It's, it's being a journalist. I mean, one of the main, you know, I, you know, my background is in photojournalism and one of the most important aspects of my job being when I was in the field was listening and trying to understand people's perspectives. And I, and I bring that skill set uh, to my team and to what I do every day as a picture editor. That, that doesn't change. It was part of my skill set in on the field when I was talking to folks. And it's still part of my skill set when I'm making visual decisions for our stories. So let's talk about those visual decisions. And obviously the, the audience for this podcast is traditionally video, but there is some overlap. And obviously what you do is, is strictly photo. But I, I think there, is, there are a lot of lessons that one can take from the photo element that apply to video as well, obviously. And, and I want you to just go into some of the visual decisions that you see coming up the most that require this kind of extra thought about representation. And, and I'm referring to on the ground, in the field, the kinds of decisions that your team needs to make and they need to make quickly while they're somewhere where they, you know, need to get their job done and then return back to the newsroom or back to now these days, probably their apartment or their house. Mm -hmm. Are you, uh, are you talking about sort of what, uh, what decisions um, are you making as a person that's behind the camera? Yes. Uh, and, um, well, I mean, I, I think, you know, 
what, what we're trying to do, uh, what I do when I was behind the camera is, is to be accurate and fair um, at all times. I, I don't think that's changed. Uh, w- one of the things that I, I think we're sort of pushing up against when we're talking about sort of like notions of journalism is this idea of objectivity that particularly news journalists have held held up to a standard and i think as as there's more voices coming into journalism we're pushing against this idea that there's that any one person can be objective but we can be accurate and fair and those are you know two of the things that i think are very necessary when you're reporting um and when when you're in the field one of the things that I think is an advantage of local journalists is their deeper understanding of the community and understanding of, of, of the place and understanding of, of the situation. So if I'm thinking of Minneapolis and I'm thinking of the uprisings in Minneapolis, there's a lot of imagery of, of the, the sort of target superstore that was um, sort of uh, vandalized. And um, an outside journalist would have made a very simple caption, you know, saying that protesters are vandalizing this Target Superstore, right? A journalist from Minneapolis might have known that that Target Superstore had, you know, historically uh, harassed uh, Black folks in that community, um, either treating them uh, differently, potentially calling the police on them. And so that level of understanding is, you know, sort of there's a value in that and and bringing that to the reporting and contextualizing what you're seeing is, is actually really important. Um, so I think the, you know, the responsibility of a journalist is on the ground is to not only show what's happening, but give a deeper context to why it's happening. What do you think when you survey the landscape, what are some of the, the easiest mistakes to fix that people are making constantly in this arena? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, for editors, for photographers? Wh- I'd say across the board. I, I'd be curious just regardless <laughs> because we all, you know, we all work in media who listen to this, but we also all consume media. Well, I'll tell you what I think is the most important thing to fix is folks need to understand anti-Blackness and how it has infused our language, especially in media or in in sort of mainstream media organizations. Um, I think uh, one of the, I think what caught, what catches a lot of newsrooms white um, mainstream media newsrooms off guard is is that they they didn't a lot of folks reporting a lot of people in in positions of power editing don't really understand how act anti blackness you know sort of uh, works within all of our systems and and I think you can see that gap in knowledge really clearly a lot of the times and so. I think one of the the most important things for journalists right now is is to understand how race and gender particularly play out in every single facet of our society. Um, That's not easy, but I think that's the most important. And I think that's a really important thing to say, too, because, you know, we've seen examples uh, in recent weeks and months of media organizations hiring reporters dedicated to race. And some of the reaction to that has been, well, that's that's all well and good, but really any reporter that's on any kind of beat should be considering race as a part of that beat. 
because race invariably plays a part in how healthcare works, uh, you know, uh, the justice system, education. I mean, you know, race yeah. and gender too, but specifically in this moment, I think race is, is so yeah. uh, in the spotlight and it, and it plays a role in everything across the board. Everything. Housing, education, you know, environment, uh, you know, um, urban development, right? Uh, everything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's why I think it's, it's, it's the onus is on everyone that's responsible for communicating what's going on in the world, climate change, understanding, ge- the, you know, the way gender plays out um, as well as the way race plays out, I think is, is just so important for a deeper understanding and, and, and contextualizing. And that, that's our job, right? So for journalists, understanding where your, your holes and gaps in knowledge are and, and then one, either filling that up or, or collaborating with, with other journalists to understand that I think is really important. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. She is Kanaz Amaria, the visuals editor at Vox, and we're talking about representation in storytelling. Kanaz, when you know when I when I think of the audience for this podcast and the people who typically give me uh, feedback about it, it's it's often young journalists, and we really do focus on young storytellers, either in college or coming into the business on that first job. And I would imagine that particularly people who are coming in, you know, and maybe had a, a much more sheltered childhood and not been exposed to too many of these conversations and these issues that you're talking about in a real way. And then they get to a small market, which are predominantly white. How do, you know, how do you recommend those journalists begin to understand these issues better in their communities and start having these conversations when their outlets for doing so may be a little more limited? I mean, that's what's beautiful about the internet, right? I mean, like you can, find, <laughs> you, know, you can find information from anywhere right now. And, and so I, you know, I think, you know, you can follow certain people on Twitter, certain voices that, you know, have been sort of banging on this door for a really long time. Um, you can read books. You can also talk, talk to people in the communities um, that either people that are, you know, right now organizing, right? Or gathering people together. If you're a journalist and, and you want to know more of something, what do you do? You ask, you find the right people that know, you know, that you think you know, you think they know what, what's going on and you ask them what's going on and then you ask them to give you more names so you can ask three more people about what they think is going right? I mean, it, it's just like, report it out, report it out. And I agree with all of that. I think what gets difficult for those first market journalists, especially, and, and those in college too, is that the demands are so high for what they're asked to turn on a daily basis, right? So, yes, you know, as a yeah, local news reporter, yeah. certainly in TV, I can't speak for, for print and other outlets, but in terms of TV, I mean, you're usually asked to do two packages uh, a day. You're shooting and editing yeah. your own stuff. So for a lot of people, in addition to trying to learn how the world works, you're also trying to learn how to operate your camera and whatever editing Absolutely. software has been put in front of you. So it, yeah. it, it you know, and, and I always say too that when, Demand is that high, it's those extra steps that get lost, the kind of steps that you described so beautifully uh, when we first started this conversation, that the kinds of things that you talk about and the kind of things that your team talks about. And so it really does take an extra effort, and it can be difficult to have those conversations and to find time. And, and 
I think, you know, it's, it's something that can't get lost though, because it is so important and, and finding, you know, whether it's setting a breakfast meeting with someone, or if you work nightside, setting a lunch meeting, somehow finding that time can really go a long way towards developing your own understanding of issues and not just locally, but issues, you know, that you'll be covering throughout your career. Yeah, and I would say that, uh, and I totally, and I and I understand that. And and then one of the things, you know, um, that you can do if you're sort of newer and you're working within this environment that's already very structured is you may be able to find other avenues to do some format breaking storytelling that isn't, you know, of the packages. So maybe the Instagram account of your local TV station is largely untouched. And maybe that's where you can, you know, experiment with different types of formats or bring in different voices that might not fit in that in in the sort of format that you need to churn out every day. Um, so, you know, be creative and 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 and, and you know, if if you have a manager that's willing to, you know, one of the great things about being young in journalism is that you've grown up with a f- device in your pocket <laughs> where you can make video, do audio, put text on photos, and publish. That's a tremendous language that you have grown up with and you know. I did not grow up like that. And so any supervisor who has a young journalist that's like, look, I think I could tell the story a little bit different give me a chance or let me tell it here in a different way or let me change the format for just this story let's see how it works let's see if it resonates with our audience um you know uh i think you know you could you could try that that's certainly something that i did early on in internships it's yes of course i did the assignment the way they wanted me to but i always made a photo that was a little bit different and maybe they went with it. Or I always like tried to find a different angle or a different approach or a different format and say, hey, can can I do this as well? Or, or can I try this? And oftentimes they're just so busy. They're like, yeah, yeah, go for it. And then all of a sudden you've tried this thing and people love it. And they're like, oh, can you do that more? Can you do that more? Uh, so. That's yeah. such a good point. And it, it is so true that especially in those smaller markets, you really can make the job what you want it to be uh on on some level because you do have that kind of that there there is a certain amount of just a wide space of air both on tv and now digitally they can really turn into your playground for for anything but certainly these topics Um, yeah you might be able to say hey can i tell this story on twitter live you know let me report it out live on twitter and see what happens like yeah I feel like a lot of what we've talked about so far has been geared towards specifically people in the majority, whether it's white Americans, whether it's men who, you know, who need to take that extra time to understand what uh, people who do not look like you or, or share your gender, uh, uh, you know, are going through. But I, I do also think that, especially for young journalists who are in a minority, how, whatever that may be, whether that's racial, whether that's religious or ethnic, there are there are a lot of fears as well when they, at least in, in those that I've talked to, when they get into newsrooms and they wonder how much of that story they, they feel comfortable sharing and how much of that voice they feel comfortable sharing in newsrooms that might not seem receptive to that in, in a power structure that is still very white and male. And I'm curious, uh, you know, obviously you've, you've had such a wonderful career and you've worked for some great institutions. 
what are some ways that you feel young journalists can empower themselves to really take charge of that story and to be that voice when, you know, stories are coming up and, and discussions are being held in editorial meetings about what stories to do on a given day? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I think this is why it's so important that, you know, organizations don't look at diversity and immediately go to, I mean, immediately just focus on diversity initiatives towards fellowships and internships, because bringing on young, diverse voices with very little support in a newsroom where they, you know, don't have much authority uh, to speak up is, that's an impossible situation. And um, I, I don't feel like, you know, um, I'm, you know, I just think I've seen too many young journalists come in and get disillusioned um, because they don't have support and it's not necessarily a safe environment. Uh, one of the things that I would say is, you know, find the people that have an affinity that you do in the newsroom. And if they've been there for a while, learn from them. Um, have them, you know, take you under their wing and, and really, you know, get, have them give you a roadmap to the newsroom. Who are good collaborators? Like you, sometimes you have to be a journalist within the newsroom and figure out how does the newsroom works? Who has the power? Who's a good collaborator? Who's a reporter that is, that whose story I, I really admire, who's, whose work I really admire? Like, you know, talk to them, see, you know, see if they can mentor you as well. So be a, be a journalist sort of within the newsroom and, and get an idea of, of, you know, the history of that newsroom and, and some of the people that have sort of come before you and, and, and who could, who where, find the support. Um, I, I hope that there's, there's at least that level of support of at least one other person in every newsroom that people can find uh, to sort of help them navigate through it. And I, and I am curious to ask you as someone who runs a team and at a, at a pretty, pretty open and diverse uh, operation at Vox. I'm curious as to, you know, what are some of the things you do to cultivate these conversations and to make sure that people do feel comfortable sharing their voices? Is it, is it something beyond simply setting the right tone and, and being open? Are there, are there conscious things that you're doing? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really appreciate at Vox is that we have a code of conduct that everyone in our organization needs to uphold, and and it's a standard. It's public; anyone can Google it. But I think it really gives us a nice framework on how we are expected to treat our colleagues, and so that's a that's a fantastic starting point. Um, the other thing I do with my team is make sure that there's always an open dialogue. They, they always know that they can come to me with questions and or concerns. Um, and I, and, and we'll have a, a conversation. Uh, there are uh, weekly check-ins that I do uh, with everyone one-on-one if they don't feel like sharing in a group environment. And, and then there are also quarterly conversations that we have uh, talking where we can talk about career growth and what you did last quarter and what you want to do the next quarter. And, and, and really, you know, I try to really listen to, to what 
how they want to grow and align that with what the newsroom needs and see if we can figure that out. Um, so it's a, it's a collaboration. I, I take it very seriously in the sense that my job is to create a safe environment for my team to be creative. Um, and if they don't feel like they can be creative and, and, and be collaborative and also be their full selves, then I, and I take that as a responsibility to figure out how I can support them in order to do that. Last thing I'm going to ask you on this overall topic, and then I want to get more into your story and, and your career path, but there is one subject that we are all covering right now, and that is COVID-19. And that is another story where representation is very important. And so much of the story, again, comes back to race and mm-hmm. comes back to location and background and all of these things. So I'm curious, for people out there listening to this who are covering the subject inside and out, is there, uh, is there either a tip you can give or maybe an area where you see people tripping up more often when they're covering this subject? just something you would want to impart when it comes to representation and covering COVID-19? Hmm, that's, a, that's a great question. I mean, one of the things that I think is really important is to, you know, mitigate risk. And in this story specifically, it is okay to think about your safety first um, because you certainly don't want to put other people in danger when you're going out into the field and telling stories. So I think it's really important to be able to have those conversations, the risk conversations with your manager or supervisor, um, because you could be putting people at risk whose stories you're telling. And, and that is, you know, obviously the last thing you want to do, do no harm is, is something that I think no journalist wants to do. Uh, the other thing is, I, I, I think it's important to, to um, consider, you know, being very specific with visuals and, and coverage and, and um, using people's faces if they're not, or, or pe- recognizable faces, if, if you're not specifically telling their story, um, should you be using that photo to illustrate a story that's broadly talking about coronavirus. For instance, when we do stories on sort of um, on vaccines, for instance, or contact tracing, I'm not going to put an image of someone that has, you know, uh, contracted the virus as the lead photo because that I feel like I'm misrepresenting that person in this story. I'm not talking about their situation. I'm talking about something more broadly. So that's a way that we, we might go to illustrations or, or collage or something like that. And, and I think that's really important when it comes to being accurate and fair is thinking about, you know, whose images are we using and whose likeness are we using to illustrate something and and, and and are we aligning the visuals with that editorial context and content this is the telling the story podcast i'm matt pearl she is kainaz amaria the visuals editor at vox and kainaz i always like to use this last section of the podcast as a, an advice section for young journalists and we've talked a little bit about advice in terms of uh you know developing that voice and being in those early newsrooms but I do want to get into your story as well, because I think you've had such an interesting career path. You've done freelancing overseas and here in the U.S. and found your way to Vox. Give me the uh, the, the short version of your <laughs> career bio and, and how you decided on each step in your path. 
Oh boy, Matt, I'm old. <laughs> there is no like I'm not. It's not a short version. <laughs> I've I've also totally made this up. There, look, I'm not. Uh, I didn't. Look, I didn't grow up. You know. <laughs> I didn't grow up drooling over the National Geographic with like a, a sort of camera in my hand when I was like 10 years old. Like I sort of came to it a little bit later in life. I, I, I studied international relations and political science in, in undergrad. And, and I have two very wonderful um, Indian parents who really wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I knew I'd be terrible at both. Um, after undergrad, there's this work permit program where you could go live and work in the UK for like six months. And I moved to London with like $500 and, and, and some friends from, from college. And I, I fell in with a group of creative folks in London. There was actually a cat named Vilam Vong, who one night literally gave me a joint and James Natwe's Inferno which is this, you know, you know, inferred. so it's this like incredible sort of opus of Natwe's work where he has basically covered every sort of conflict. Um, and it is a devastating book, right? This isn't like, a, a, you know, this is a devastating book of some of the worst sort of atrocities that uh, human beings have inflicted on, on, on other human beings. And I sat in the corner for like three hours and fell into this book. And I sort of came out of this haze being like, I want to be part of that type of storytelling. Now I have a lot of problems with Natwe's, you know, sort of uh, approach, uh, you know, decade, two decades later, but I fell in love with this idea that photojournalism could bring together can be creative, can be academic, can allow you to travel, and, and most importantly, allow you to ask questions um, to other people and have, you know, try to understand how they belong and where they belong, and 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 talk about their lives. I think that's that's amazing to walk into someone's life and ask them questions and and be received is incredible. So fast forward, um, I moved to the Bay Area. I started working in really local uh, newspapers. I interned at the Palo Alto Weekly. That was my first sort of official photo sort of gig. Um, I then went to grad school at OU and, and that's where I learned other languages. I learned visual editing. I learned audio. I learned video. I learned how to work with developers and make internet. I learned how to work with data journalists. I, I, I just added more languages to my toolkit. And then I uh, got an internship at the St. Pete Times for a year, and then I got a Fulbright to go to India to to do a story on my own community, and I and I lived in Bombay for two years, and that's where I freelanced for Western publications as well. Uh, and then um, two years later, NPR had a, a temporary position available, and I was able to to take that and join NPR, and that temporary position turned into five and a half years mm -hmm. where. Started on the multimedia team, and then, uh, long story short, um, there was a news applications team that made internet, and there was a multimedia team that made photos and video. Brian Bohr and I combined the two teams to create the visuals team at NPR, which is like an interdisciplinary team of, of, of digital journalists within this radio network that was tasked to make 
interesting web native stories. And that was just a really fun time where we were, we were, you know, creating web native stories from the ground up. It was just so cool. There's, um, I don't know if you remember the Planet Money Makes a T-shirt project, but we we, we did that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we I um I worked on that in, in in a lot of different facets. There's a ton of journalism and and fantastic journalists that made that project. Borderlands. I drove the entire U.S. Mexico border with Steve Inscape and two radio producers. And I was the photographer, and then we created this sort of web native version of that reporting project online. Um, after five and a half years at NPR, I came to Vox, um, and I was lucky enough to start the visuals team at Vox. Um, so if I tell anything, it's as far as like young folks, is that I think it's important to have a deep understanding of a thing. Like photojournalism and, and visual communication is my sort of deep you know, knowledge and expertise. And then I've sort of uh, uh, added more languages as I've gone. Um, not that I'm an expert in any of these other languages, but I understand how to collaborate with people who are experts in that language. So I can collaborate with developers and editors and reporters and data, you know, data analysis and, and statisticians and all of these different incredible skill sets. Um, we can collaborate to tell stories. And that's what I really love to do is, is collaborating with other journalists that are experts in their field to really create an experience for the audience. That was not the short answer, but- oh, I'm sorry, no, no. I know. No, no, but it was, probably, <laughs> it was probably the short version of that story because I'm sure that story could go hours. And I will also say, I wouldn't have given up a second of that. That was fascinating. And, and what a journey you've had. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, obviously Vox is such an interesting place to work. And, you know, so there's so much groundwork breaking work coming out of there. What's a project you've done, uh, you know, this year, maybe since COVID that you've really been proud of or, or, or maybe something you're, you're working on now that, you know, has really gotten you going in terms of just inspiring creativity or, or just accomplishing some really groundbreaking work? Oh, well, uh, we, you know, uh, end of last year, we published a story, a story about super trees. Uh, if you Google Vox and super trees, you'll find it immediately. But it's basically our science editor, Eliza, uh, brought this project to us and she wanted to uh, report on three remarkable trees that could really save us from climate collapse. And um, they are in three different forests around the world. And we sent our reporters to three different countries. I was able to find in-country or near-country photojournalists to pair with those reporters. And then we created a, uh, a sort of web-native uh, project um, online. And so we integrated graphics and text and photography and narrative. Um, and, and I think created a really nice experience for our audience. And, and the hope was that you'd walk away falling in love with these trees and understanding just how incredible their superpowers are. Um, it's, a, it's a great project and, and uh, really, uh, I, I really feel lucky to, be, to have been a part of that. I, I just did what I imagine many will do upon hearing you talk about that, which is to do what you said and Google Vox and Super Trees, and I've been scrolling through it. This is magnificent. I, I, I haven't been reading much so far. I've just been 
I've been listening to you while looking at <laughs> photos of these trees and this display, and I can't wait right? to go back through this. This is gorgeous. Um, yeah, I, this is what I love. I love to make internet, and and I and I love to make really incredible experiences for folks on the phone and on desktop, and so it's really fun. And I get a sense too, just from that story and some of the other things you've said, that you really do take pride in finding those people in the communities where you go, and you know, and giving them shots and and giving them chances mm-hmm. to shine on at a at a at a platform like Box. Yeah, because I value their point of view. I, you know, when I hire photographers, I'm saying I'm hiring you as a journalist to talk to my reporter, talk to our reporters and and add to their reporting. What do you know about the community? What are you seeing? What's your perspective? What aren't we seeing? What are the questions we aren't asking? You know, all of those things and inevitably reporters that come back you know, say, I, I never, you know, I, I want to work with a photographer every time they never come back and are like, Oh, that, you know, never again. They're always <laughs> like, it's so nice to have someone working with me in the field. It's, it's another pair of eyes. It's another person to ask questions. It's another perspective. They love it. I mean, you know, it's, it's a deeper, richer the context that that we bring to the story and, and there's I don't I'm, I've never met a reporter that would say no to that you know what I mean um so I don't hire photographers to push a button I hire them because I think they have a point of view and I and I think they have an expertise that can really make our journalism stronger well, Kainaz, this has been such a pleasure, and uh, I'm so looking forward to uh, speaking with you again at the workshop in, in two weeks from when we're recording this. But for now, I will, end, I will end with that famous reporter's question. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you wanted to add? Oh, uh, well, I will say that the past two jobs that I've had uh, didn't exist before I stepped into them. And so I think the most exciting thing about journalism right now is that we are literally making new careers and new opportunities and every new platform and every new place to tell a story is is a completely new uncharted territory and so when i was growing up i could have never dreamed about being a photographer for a radio network that just wasn't even possible and, and i just I'm so excited to, 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 to see where all this goes and where the opportunities are and, and what different jobs will have created. And, and so I do think it's a, even though it's a difficult time to be a journalist, it's also a really inspiring and interesting time. Beautifully said. Kainaz Amaria, thanks so much for joining me on the Telling the Story podcast. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. And don't forget, you can hear Kainaz and 23 other talented speakers at the NPPA Virtual Video Storytelling Workshop coming Friday, August 7th and Saturday, August 8th. Sign up right now at mppa.org or through the link in the show notes for this episode. The Telling the Story blog updates every Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher Smart Radio. And check out my book, The Solo Video Journalist. Thank you to Jazar for the theme music. Thanks to Kainaz Amaria for joining me as my guest. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We'll see you next time.